From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Mass shootings often intensify calls for tighter gun laws, such as the case after Monday's attack in Boulder. We'll hear from that city's representative in Congress, Joe Naguz. Now, most often, pleas for gun control are fruitless at the federal level. What might be different this time? I'll speak with the founder of Moms Demand Action, former Boulder resident Shannon Watts. Every time there's a shooting tragedy in this country, I'm immediately asked what one law would have stopped that act of gun violence. And the reality is it takes a safety network of laws and policies to protect Americans. We're also joined by Connie Sanders, whose father died saving students at Columbine High School. When these things happen, it's an opportunity for us to talk about gun violence in general. Including suicide, she says. Hi, I'm Allison Sherry from CPR News. Every day, I aggressively seek out the most important criminal justice news in the state and deliver it to you with context. I'm thankful that you value responsible fact-based journalism that gives you insight on how Colorado's justice system works. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's happening in all parts of the state. Today, I'm asking you to make this reporting possible. Please donate at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This state is still reeling from the mass shooting Monday in Boulder. Ten people were killed when a man opened fire at a King Supers grocery store. A vigil last night drew hundreds of mourners in person and online. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden called on Congress to ban assault-style weapons. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common-sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. But a ban is not the only policy activists are pursuing. Later in the show, we'll hear from Connie Sanders and Shannon Watts. Sanders lost her dad nearly 22 years ago in the shooting at Columbine High School. Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action and used to live in Boulder. They say they're in for a tough fight, but believe the wind is finally at their backs. First, let's hear from Boulder's representative in Congress, Joe Nagus. And Congressman, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you for having me, Ryan. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. How do you see your role right now in a community that's still very much in shock? Well, the most important thing that I can do, uh, Ryan, right now as a representative for this community is to, to be present with the community as it's grieving. It's uh, uh, it, it, A lot of folks in our community are still in shock. Uh, it's been a devastating week for Boulder, and our community is really focused right now on remembering the victims, on, on supporting uh, the victims' families, on supporting each other, the many survivors of the shooting at King Supers, uh, and uh, you know, really healing together as we begin this, this grieving process. So supporting them uh, in those efforts, and, and of course, also ensuring that we take the steps necessary to prevent a tragedy like this from happening in the future. And so we're very focused on the legislative front of you know, ensuring that we work to, uh, to enacting the steps that we believe could potentially save lives. What's the first step? 
Well, I'd say this, Ryan. I, I've had a lot of conversations with constituents over the course of the last few days, and folks in Boulder are angry. They are frustrated that the federal government has uh, really abdicated its role in protecting the lives of folks in our community and across our state. And there are a number of solutions that the federal government could pursue, that the Congress could pursue immediately to save lives. Uh, the universal background check bill, closing the Charleston loophole, both of those bills are bills that the House of Representatives passed on a bipartisan basis that are now pending in the United States Senate, reinstating the federal assault weapons ban, which, uh, as you uh, just uh, played the audio clip of President Biden and uh, in his call for the Congress to do so, we previously had an assault weapons ban in the United States. It was a bill that passed on a bipartisan basis in 1994, I believe, along with many of my colleagues, and it's time to reinstate that ban. And I'm a co-sponsor of a bill that's pending before the House Judiciary Committee, the committee on which I serve. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to make progress in that front as well. There are other steps that the president can take, uh, including appointing a national director of gun violence to help address what is clearly an epidemic in our country. Myself and Lucy McBeth, a colleague of mine from the state of Georgia who tragically lost her son to gun violence several years ago, led a letter of our colleagues uh, to the president asking him uh, to do so. So we're going to keep pushing. Uh, it's, I think it's clear there's no panacea, but it is also clear that we can take steps to save lives. And it's going to be a part of a comprehensive set of solutions I think we're going to have to, to bring to bear in Washington. Well, let's unpack some of that. So you mentioned the Charleston loophole, which allows a gun sale to proceed if results of a background check don't come back within three days. That's something you want to close. It's something that the House has sent to the Senate along with universal background checks. And so much of this uh, is now in the Senate's hands. And of course, Democrats have a razor thin majority in that chamber. Is any of this legislatively possible, given the filibuster, and walk us through how you see this proceeding? Uh, I think so, Ryan. Uh, I'm optimistic uh, that there's a path forward for several of these proposals. I would say first, with respect to the two bills that you mentioned, both of those passed the House with bipartisan support. Republicans, uh, several Republicans supporting those bills. Uh, Obviously, as you said, there are obstacles in the United States Senate, but we shouldn't assume that our political institutions are impervious to public opinion. And certainly my constituents are tired of excuses. So I will be reaching out to every United States senator that uh, that, that I can talk to to make the case for these reforms. Uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think to the extent an archaic uh, rule like the filibuster prevents us from taking decisive action that's broadly supported by the American public in this instance, then I think we ought to reform and, and eliminate that rule. And, and that's something that I've been Uh, very uh, uh, vocal about, uh, along with many of my colleagues. So we'll continue to push every lever that we can. I'd like to just talk a a little bit about this idea of having a national director of gun violence. One thing that I hear from gun rights activists is that any number of things can be a weapon. A car can be a weapon. A knife can be a weapon. Why should there be a specific role in the federal government that is directed at violence through one sort of tool? I would say that the empirical data shows that we have a gun violence crisis in the United States and uh, that it is clear um, that so many are losing their lives across our country and in communities across our state. And we witnessed that, of course, here uh, just this week in in my home community of Boulder. Uh, I think that the crisis is a uniquely American one. As we look at other Western countries, 
uh, don't, do not have nearly the incidences of gun violence and homicides um, caused by uh, gun uh, as we do here in the United States. So a director of gun violence prevention uh, could bring federal resources to bear here in our state and other states, could lead a whole-of-government approach, a coordinated response with the various law enforcement agencies like the ATF, the FBI, other entities within the Department of Justice, uh, and also would be charged with uh, working with the Congress on some of these proposals that uh, you and I have discussed. I think it's necessary. I'm hopeful the president will agree. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're joined in this part of the program by Congressman Joe Nagus, who represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District, which includes Boulder, where the mass shooting happened Monday. He also represents Fort Collins and Vail. I, I am curious what you make of why these mass shootings continue to happen in Colorado. They are by no means exclusive to this state, but I think a lot of Coloradans and frankly a lot of my friends and family who live elsewhere keep presenting me with this question. Uh, Joe Nagus, do you have a sense of this? You know, Ryan, I've struggled with that question over the last 72 hours. I've lived in Colorado since I was six. Um, I went to high school at a, at a high school that was you know, 10 minutes away from Columbine and was 14 years old in high school when that tragedy unfolded and when, uh, when, when the mass shooting occurred and we lost so many uh, members of our community. Then I, my niece was a kindergartner at the STEM school in Highland Ranch two years ago, and I you know, was frozen with the same fear that so many in Colorado experienced that day when I learned that she was being locked down as a kindergartner in her classroom. I don't have an answer as to why Colorado, as you said, while we are certainly mass shootings have not been exclusive, exclusive of our state, but nonetheless, uh, there have been such a high incidence of these events, these tragedies unfolding in our state year after year, decade after decade. What I would say, Ryan, is that I think we have a responsibility, a unique responsibility to help lead the country as we try to chart a path forward as to how to make these events far less likely in the future. And that's what I'm certainly committed to doing uh, with my colleagues. Let's spend just a little bit more time getting some details on what an assault weapons ban would look like. As our own Ben Marcus has reported, the gun the alleged shooter bought before the attack looks like a rifle but is regulated as a pistol, the Ruger AR-556 pistol. The classification is just squishy. Do you believe it should be illegal, this particular firearm? And and if so, like how do you define what's allowed and what's not? Yes. So I would refer you to the, the proposed resolution, uh, the ban that's been proposed by Representative Cicilline that's pending in the Congress. Uh, we believe under the legislation that's been drafted uh, that it would apply to the particular weapon that was purchased in this case. Obviously, as you know, there's still a lot of facts that we are learning. Yes, about. that's right the tragedy on Monday and as to the particular weapon that was used. But as you said, uh, the weapon that was identified in the arrest affidavit released by the Boulder police uh, that the defendant purchased uh, allegedly uh, several days before the shooting, we believe would be uh, covered under the uh, assault weapons ban as proposed by Representative Cicilline. The bill is very detailed uh, and comprehensive in scope. It identifies uh, a wide range of weapons um, that would be characterized as assault weapons under the federal law and would therefore be banned. Congressman Nagus, when it comes to gun legislation, who do you turn to for information, for expertise? I mean, who has your ear, in other words? You know, we've, uh, the 
this is not an issue that uh, um, that is new to, to us or to my office. And we've, we've been working on these issues for many years. Um, and I serve on the Judiciary Committee, as I mentioned, which is the Committee of Jurisdiction for Gun Violence Measures as well as criminal law more generally. Um, I turn to folks in my community, to experts uh, on gun violence, uh, various academics, to law enforcement, uh, and I've certainly uh, visited with the law enforcement in my community with respect to some of these proposals, uh, and with citizens, with my constituents, with the, those who have been impacted, with survivors, uh, many others who you know have experienced the pain and the loss and the anguish that comes from losing from losing a family member or a loved one to gun violence. Before we wrap up, should mental health be a part of this discussion, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. As I said uh, at the outset, I, I don't believe there is a panacea to, to addressing the gun violence crisis in America. I think it's going to take a comprehensive approach, multiple different proposals uh, with respect to gun violence, addressing the mental health crisis in our country. Uh, it, we're we're going to have to make sure we don't look at this in, in a myopic way. And I'm certainly committed to pursuing every single solution uh, that will ultimately save lives. Ken Buck and Lauren Boebert, Republican members of Colorado's congressional delegation, are pretty outspoken gun rights activists. Uh, lastly, have you spoken with either of them since the shooting? And if so, what do those conversations sound like? Uh, I haven't spoken with either of them. Okay. I've, I've spoken with many colleagues uh, from across the country, Republican and Democratic members of Congress, who called me, uh, including the Speaker of the House and others, to, to express their condolences and and if they had some meaningful conversations with uh, colleagues, again, on both sides of the aisle, with respect to some of the proposals that I just mentioned, but I have not uh, spoken to those those two members that you mentioned. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Again, I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Congressman Joe Nagus represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District, which includes Boulder, Fort Collins, and Vail. So you've just heard a lawmaker's perspective. Now... Two guests who collectively have spent 30 years pushing for tighter gun laws. They've had some victories, but at the federal level especially, there have been a lot of defeats. Connie Sanders lost her father nearly 22 years ago at Columbine High School. Dave Sanders, a teacher and coach, died while saving students. Connie is a member of the Everytown for Gun Safety Survivor Network, an organization that includes Moms Demand Action founded by Shannon Watts, formerly of Boulder. Watts describes herself as a communications executive turned stay-at-home mom of five. She was so deeply affected by the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting that she joined the fight for, quote, public safety measures protecting against gun violence. Connie, Shannon, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us, Ryan. Thank you. Connie, where were you when you heard the news about Boulder? I was actually uh, in between sessions for clients. I treat people who commit violent crime and I was between sessions and I saw three texts that said, I love you. And sadly, since my journey at Columbine, anytime I get an overage of supportive texts, that means that there's been another shooting. So I quickly looked and was just horrified. The first thing I saw was about officer Tally and he has seven kids. And that immediately just put me back into trauma time. I know what it's like to be someone who cried themselves to sleep, trying to understand why I lost someone to gun violence while they were just doing a normal activity. 
going to work, going to the grocery store. How long did you cry yourself to sleep? How long does that last? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, several things will bring it up. Um, it's been 8,010 days since my dad was murdered. You know, we hear about these new shootings. We think about all of the people traveling the journey that we've traveled for almost 22 years now. And that in itself uh, leads us to cry ourselves to sleep quite frequently, more than we ever expected. Shannon Watts, you lived in Boulder for a time, correct? I did. I actually raised my youngest son there. He went to high school there um, and considered it home for over five years. Tell me where you were when you learned about the shooting at the grocery store. I was in my home office and, uh, you know, like Connie, I start getting all of these texts anytime there's a shooting tragedy in this country. And my phone, I started getting all of these notifications going off and, and just knew. You know, when I saw that it was in Boulder, uh, my daughter is at the University of Denver, goes to Boulder a lot. She busks, so she and her friends, you know, sing on street corners in Boulder. And that was my first thought was, I hope my daughter wasn't in the area. And uh, thankfully, I was able to get through to her right away. Is that a grocery store you know? Just curious. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, anyone who lives in Boulder has shopped at that King Supers. What is the biggest change in the law that you hope grows out of this shooting in Boulder, Connie? I really feel that Shannon could answer that a bit better than myself. However, I would say from my perspective, given my career and my personal experience, anything that's federal, we can have all the protections that we'd like in the state and local, um, but until there's some kind of a federal protection, everybody's one state line away from somebody else's laws. I also think, my goodness, at the end of the day, what we know we need is universal background checks. We know that it works. This is something that does not harm people's rights. And my own clients, my own clients who have a history of violence, several have said, I went to go try to get a gun and I can't have one. <laughs> they didn't know. They didn't know. So it is preventing. Shannon Watts to the idea of a universal background check. Those exist in Colorado. They did not prevent this particular shooting. Um, do you want to reflect on, on that idea from Connie first? Sure. I mean, we're still learning about the gunman and, and, and how he acquired the weapons that he had. But every time there's a shooting tragedy in this country, I'm immediately asked what one law would have stopped that act of gun violence. And the reality is it takes a safety network of laws and policies to protect Americans. Car accidents is an excellent example. You know, back in the 80s, it wasn't just seatbelts or just speed bumps or just speed limits that reduced the number of traffic fatalities. It was a whole host of laws and policies that came together and saved American lives. Not every American life. People still die in car accidents. But we haven't even tried trying when it comes to gun violence in this country. Background checks on every gun sale, we know that they keep guns away from dangerous people who are at a risk to themselves or others. And that is the foundation of a holistic gun safety system. But there's also more that needs to be done. When we look at these laws in states, we see that they work. It only makes sense to apply them at a federal level. But as Connie said, we're all only as safe right now as the closest state with the weakest gun laws. Shannon, do you think that the gun, the shooter, 
uh, was able to buy before the attack on the King Supers. Should that gun, which lives somewhere between uh, in its status between a pistol and a rifle, do you think that gun should be banned? So we support assault weapons bans uh, and prohibitions. In fact, I lived in Boulder when we worked at a municipal level to establish an assault weapons ban that actually was overturned just weeks before uh, this mass shooting took place in Boulder. All that said, we know when we look at data, when we look at the laws in the states, that in order to have these other laws that will save lives, one of the most important things we have to do first is to establish a background check on every single gun sale. And that's also a law that has you know, broad bipartisan support. Um, and so that is what we have been working on at a federal level. When we look at what legislation has passed the House so far, the U.S. House, it's background checks. It is a bill to close what's called the Charleston loophole and also a bill that would reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. So that is our focus right now on a federal level. But certainly at the, the city and state level, we have um, supported assault weapons bans. You compared this to car safety, you know, adding seatbelts and adding airbags. I think that there are some who would say gun ownership is spelled out in the U.S. Constitution. It is a special kind of right. And that legislating here and there at a local level, at a state level, at a federal level uh, is not about adding safety features like it would be to a car, but is about chipping away at people's Second Amendment rights. What would you say? I would say there aren't that many people who would say that. That's actually a, probably a, a very small group of, of, of a vocal minority of gun extremists who believe that rights can't be regulated. Uh, in fact, the Supreme Court has said that rights can be regulated in the Heller decision, and Scalia agreed. Again and again, we see courts saying, absolutely, states have the right to regulate guns. Um, this idea that the Second Amendment is somehow better and more important than any other amendment is, is something the NRA has championed and said for so long. It's really a perversion of the Second Amendment. We aren't talking about undoing the Second Amendment or not anti-gun. Many of our volunteers are gun owners uh, or their partners are. This is simply about restoring the responsibility that should go along with gun rights in the first place. Connie, many opponents say tighter gun laws won't stop an evil person with a gun. Uh, I note that Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert tweeted Wednesday, you cannot legislate evil away. And, you know, an argument that's often made is someone who is willing to go into a grocery store and mow down 10 people is not someone who's going to be stopped by a law. Are we sure it won't stop them? How do we know? We haven't tried. And it may not stop somebody, but it may slow them down and give an opportunity for the people around that person to see the red flags, to intervene, to try to ascertain what somebody's plan is. Somebody who is determined to get a weapon in this country probably will, but why are we making it so easy? So when it comes down to it, here's the reality. We can't prove what doesn't happen. We will never know how many things are prevented. But why don't we try? And the one thing that I know that maybe Lauren Boebert and several other people don't know is as somebody who actually works with the people that have committed violent crime is they are not all evil. They are people just like you and I who have had life circumstances, bad decisions, situations in which 
they committed a crime. But the majority of them are not just going to go on the black market and get a gun because they're mad. When we're talking about evil, we're talking about such a minuscule percentage of our society. Stop that small percentage or at least slow them down. Do safe storage. Learn how to lock up your weapons. Make sure that you're talking to your your friends and your family about safe gun ownership. There have been some programs here locally with the gun stores where they look for signs of suicidality, where they assess that type of thing. And this is where we start saying, okay, we're coming up with solutions. Well, if it doesn't work, why are we doing that either? Why are we trying to have people who are purchasing, who are selling guns assess for suicidality? How do we know if that works either? Shannon Watts, let's talk about some of the political realities here. The House has indeed passed some legislation, as you say, related to the Charleston loophole, related to background checks. But in the Senate, it's a tall order because of the filibuster. How do you get around that as an activist? And and what's different this time around? I mean, I think of Sandy Hook, which I know got you involved in this. You were so disturbed by what happened there that you started an online forum that grew into this organization, Moms Demand Action. And, you know, Democrats have had broader majorities than this and not been able to get gun laws passed. So much is different in in the last decade, and, and in part because Moms Demand Action started after the, the Sandy Hook School shooting tragedy. We now have hundreds of thousands of volunteers all across the country like me who wake up and work on this issue every single day. We have millions of supporters. We're actually larger than the NRA. Uh, And if you look in 2008, about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Today, none do. And that really is a sea change in American politics. and, And this issue is no longer a third rail. There's no question this will be a tough fight. But I, I think there is a lot more support for background checks than anyone might expect. First of all, we have universal Democratic support in the Senate. Uh, there are several retiring Republicans. We have strong allies in the Republican Congress. Um, on top of that, the NRA is weaker than they've ever been. They're sidelined by bankruptcy and, and investigations. So there's nowhere for Republican senators to run and hide this time. They're going to have to put their names on votes and, and voting against legislation that has the support of 93% of Americans, you know, that they will, they will do so at their political peril. Do you think that this should be the end of the filibuster? I mean, is this the issue to get rid of the filibuster over? Or are you expecting that there would be enough Republican support or waiting for that moment? You know, our number one goal is passing background check legislation. So we don't get to make the rules in the Senate. We'll have to operate within whatever framework exists to get that done. But regardless uh, of what they decide the rules will be, we will work with senators. We are working with senators from both parties. And and those discussions are going well. Shannon, what happens to, if eventually uh, you are able to push for an assault-style weapons ban, what would happen to the guns already in people's hands? I mean, I think of the AR-15 in particular, an enormously popular and mass-produced firearm. Well, I I don't think we know the answer to that question. That legislation isn't even being considered right now at a federal level. Um, And there have been all kinds of discussions about what would that look like. But we know there was an assault weapons ban 
in the 90s and, and it, there was no confiscation. Um, so that would, again, be something that would be up to, to the White House and to Congress to decide the details of. It's so often that mass shootings spark this discussion. Mm-hmm. And yet the vast majority of gun violence is not in the form of mass shootings. I think it's important to make that clear. Connie, you're nodding. Do you want to reflect on that? Oh, my goodness. Over the years, I have personally worked with people who have committed crimes of gun violence, several clients who have committed suicide by firearm. And that is, by the way, the, the most common violence is the violence that is turned towards oneself, suicide through gun violence. I also specialize in domestic violence offender treatment, and that is a really big component of lethality in domestic violence cases. So the combination of that, it's horrifying how staggering those numbers are and how many people in our community are actually impacted by gun violence. Mass shootings is what makes us talk about it. And I'm hopeful that when these things happen, it's an opportunity for us to talk about gun violence in general, because nobody thinks it'll happen to them. Nobody thinks that they're at risk of it until things like this happen, until a senseless death happens at the hands of someone else or somebody hurts themselves. And I think that gun violence is a conversation that every person in America needs to have. Mass shootings are, are really the tip of the iceberg in terms of gun violence in this country. And they get a lot of attention because there's so many people killed at one time in one place. But if you look at the fact that 100 Americans are shot and killed in this country every single day, and then you divide that by four, which is the definition of how many victims there have to be for the FBI to consider something a mass shooting, that's actually 20 mass shootings every single day in this country. And, and what we saw last year in 2020 was that mass shootings slowed down. And that made sense because Americans weren't out in public. We weren't gathering together in our homes. But it was actually one of the deadliest years on record in terms of gun violence. And that's because there were so many gun homicides and gun suicides, domestic gun violence, unintentional shootings. And, and what is really terrifying is that uh, as America starts to get back to normal, that means that these public shootings resume. And given the fact that there were about 50 million background checks conducted in the last year, uh, many of those gun buyers may live in states without background checks or training or permitting. You know, I'm really scared about what happens next when we do open our schools and our stores and kids are in the streets. Uh, It is truly a recipe for disaster. Connie Sanders, does it begin to feel like Groundhog Day? It does feel like Groundhog's Day. When Columbine happened 8,010 days ago, the world stopped. The mall closed. Sporting events canceled. Schools closed. Everybody stopped. Everybody reflected all over the world. And now we blink because we are becoming desensitized to this type of thing. And every time we hear people say, how could it happen here? How could it happen in Connecticut? How could it happen in Highlands Ranch? How could it happen anywhere? And the one thing that keeps me going is after each high profile shooting, I get a lot of messages. Yesterday, I posted something that said, if you want to know how to get involved, if thoughts and prayers are not enough, I want you to decide which family member you're willing to give up. 
What payment will it cost for you to do something different? Take a look at your family. Which one will you pay? Because statistically, it is getting more and more likely that you will have to pay a family member either in death or by injury or by trauma. Who's it going to cost? So I said, PM me. Send me a message if you want to know ways to get involved. Typically, Ryan, I'd get one or two, and then they wouldn't follow through. I got 23. Things are changing. People are tired of it. And I think after a year of reprieve because of the pandemic, we have not had a lot of high-profile shootings, but suicides are through the roof. But now it feels so raw again because we had a moment of peace. And so I think that that this event in Boulder is a catalyst. And when we're talking about background checks, people that are against it tend to be our elected officials. I know a lot of people, Republican, Democrat, people who are unaffiliated that are all pro-background check. I have yet to meet anyone personally who is against it. So it's time to do it. Shannon Watts, before we go, will you reflect on what Connie Sanders describes there as a, a gap or a chasm between what the national populace says they support in polls and what lawmakers in Washington and in state capitals, for that matter, seem willing to press forward on? Is there a disconnect there in your mind? There is a disconnect, but you have to remember that we're trying to undo decades of influence by one of the most powerful, wealthy special interests that ever existed. And that takes several election cycles. We're making huge progress. And look, everyone asks, you know, if if this is a hopeless issue and nothing could be further from the truth. I know we are waiting for this cathartic moment in Congress that I believe is coming, but we can't lose sight of the fact that we have been doing this work in state houses and boardrooms for nearly a decade. We've passed hundreds of good gun laws. We've stopped the NRA's agenda 90% of the time every year for the last five years. Hundreds of companies have changed their policies around this issue. This is a sea change. And what we needed was momentum on the ground to point the right president and the right Congress in the right direction. And and we are so close um, to finally having that cathartic moment in Congress. Thank you both for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Shannon Watts and Connie Sanders. Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action. Connie Sanders and her siblings lost their father, Dave, in the attack on Columbine High School 22 years ago. So what else do you want to hear on this topic? Let us know. Email coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. We'll be right back on CPR News and KRCC. It was kind of a normal day. We're gearing up, get my boots on. And then there was a very loud explosion. The trauma of an overseas deployment can cause PTSD, which can lead to addiction. But recovery is possible. I'm grateful I did not give up. All the joy that has come into my life, I would have missed it. One veteran's story on this week's episode of Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. With support from CU Anschutz, Department of Psychiatry. Colorado's Republican Party is on the verge of picking a new leader to help it rebuild after several disappointing election cycles. Select party members vote for a new GOP chair this weekend. I spoke with CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland about what's at stake. 
Venta, how big is this field? Who all's running? Five candidates are actually vying to head the state's Republican Party, and they are going to replace the outgoing chair, Congressman Ken Buck. He decided not to seek re-election to the two-year position. And so briefly, the people running are the current party vice chair, Christy Burton-Brown, then former Secretary of State Scott Gessler, and two past congressional candidates, Casper Stockham and Rich Mancuso, and then conservative political consultant Jonathan Lockwood. And so whoever wins will in many ways be the face of the party, the person who speaks to the media and the public about issues, as well as shaping the strategy and the plan for upcoming elections. Does anything stand out to you about this field? I would say the gender age, racial diversity of this group definitely stands out. It's much more diverse than the state's Republican lawmakers who are overwhelmingly white and male. Casper Stockham is African-American. Jonathan Lockwood is gay. And he's the only one in the group who strongly opposed the reelection of Donald Trump. And he actually voted for Joe Biden. So we've got some ideological diversity there. And then I mentioned Vice Chair Christy Burton-Brown. She's emphasized how having a woman in this role could be a strength for the party. And she spoke at a recent forum hosted by the group Colorado Hispanic Republicans. No one like me has been elected to lead the Colorado Republican Party since before I was born. Suburban moms like me, who are lawyers, who have children, are Democrats in Colorado. I can bring them back to our party because I speak the language they understand. And this is a theme all of the candidates are talking about, how they are best positioned to expand the party, because registration for Republicans is now lagging behind both unaffiliated voters and Democrats. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I mean, obviously, 2018 and 2020 were not great years for Republican candidates in Colorado. They lost every statewide race in 18, and incumbent Senator Cory Gardner was defeated last year. What specifically are the candidates saying about how they would turn things around? They all talked about the need to raise more money, improve communication with local officials and the public, and then be innovative. And they want to focus on everyday concerns and local issues and unify against Democrats who are in charge of the state government. And then the candidates said they want to broaden the GOP tent. After the 2020 election, Casper Stockham founded a group that trains candidates, particularly young people and people of color. Well, what the party needs to do is what I've been asking them to do for eight years is to show up in the communities more, the black and Hispanic communities. They've been ignoring those communities, thinking that they didn't need the vote. But now it's evident that in order to win statewide, we have to have that vote. Well, as we talk about where the Colorado GOP goes from here, uh, I have to ask about an issue that's become central for the party nationally, and that's voting laws. Is that playing a role in this Colorado race, Benta? Yes. Um, I mean, first, we should say there's no evidence of widespread voting fraud, but polls consistently show that more than half of Republican voters believe there was. And most of the candidates say election integrity, specifically overhauling some of Colorado's voting laws, is a big priority. Jonathan Lockwood says the topic is the number one issue to a lot of the people voting in this chair race, he said, by leaps and bounds. And he said he really wants the GOP to move on from that whole issue. And he personally wants to focus on recovery from the pandemic and job creation. My message to Republicans is that Joe Biden won the election. It's time to move forward. And when 
mainstream voters hear the words election integrity from a Republican's mouth, they hear election denial. And that is not a good thing for the party. It's not a good thing for our state. It's not a good thing for our country. So Lockwood thinks Republicans need to move past this question of election policy. But what are the other candidates saying? Well, I'd say this entire issue is especially interesting when it comes to Scott Gessler. He's had to do a bit of a balancing act. He served as Colorado's top election official during the time when the state moved to all-male ballots, and he's defended the integrity of Colorado's elections in the past. But since then, he's also called the results of the presidential race into doubt. And he's emphasized the work he did for the Trump campaign to challenge the vote in Nevada. So so keep in mind, the GOP state party chair does not have control over how state election laws are passed and and what's enacted in statute. There have been efforts from from some Republican state lawmakers to change the all-male ballot process and voter ID requirements. But with Democrats in control of the state legislature, those ideas aren't likely to gain traction. Benta, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland on the race for state GOP party chair. Undocumented immigrants who've been hit hard by the pandemic have few places to go for aid. They don't qualify for much government support, so they've had to turn to other avenues. CPR's Haley Sanchez has the story of an organization in Durango that has stepped up. See, see, boy, support a. 550. Beatriz Garcia has been incredibly busy this year. She's the program manager of Compañeros in Durango. It's a resource center for people who are undocumented in the Four okay. Corners area. Okay, perfecto. Bueno. She's on the phone with a volunteer who will help her deliver food and other goods to people in need. Garcia is trying to figure out when they can meet up. This lady is going to be until 3.30. At her house. Before the pandemic, Compañeros primarily helped people with translation services, education, and more. But over the last year, Garcia says the focus has shifted to providing things like rental assistance, gift cards, diapers, and food. It's filled a big hole for people who are undocumented in the area and have been hard hit financially. Today, Garcia is distributing groceries and other household goods in Las Animas from her SUV. So we're going to the closest trailer park. They have a good amount of uh, Spanish-speaking families there. Compañeros gave out a 1,000 food boxes to families in the Four Corners area last year. They've been getting support from a local soup kitchen and the Left Behind Workers Fund, a group that collects donations specifically to help people who are undocumented during the pandemic. So far, Compañeros has also provided nearly $250,000 in rental assistance and other aid. One woman who's received some of that help and who has helped Compañeros get food to others is Reina. We're not using her full name because of her immigration status. Reina says life the last year has been stressful. I talked to her over video chat while she ate dinner and her kids played in the background. Reina says she and her family have been out of work and unable to pay rent. And then their immigration lawyer dropped their case after taking their money. The trouble with the lawyer is what led Reina to compañeros in the first place. But when the pandemic hit, she started getting help with food. They showed me what was inside that week's food box. Cereal. A thing of cheese. 
There's a thing of uh, bread. It didn't take long for Raina and her family to realize her neighbors also needed groceries. So she started picking up extra boxes and coordinated getting them to others in the neighborhood. She says it's like a chain. Whoever you can help helps the next person. No me gusta ver que los niños anden sufriendo por comida o si necesitan algo también ayudan con ropa. Reina's son's girlfriend translated for us. Because she is a mother herself, she doesn't like seeing kids suffer because lack of food. She doesn't like knowing that there's kids out there suffering, not being able to eat. She was worried families might run out of money and take drastic measures, like stealing, to feed their kids. She says helping others is the right thing to do, especially during hard times. Me siento feliz por los demás. She just feels happy for everybody else. Reina is, is just, she's very active with friends and with the neighbors. That's Compañeros manager Beatriz Garcia again. She is, you know, a good example of how the community can be united. And she is being benefited from others, but she she is also willing to be helping and, and trying to, you know, get things done for others. Garcia says that sense of community is important, especially now when it comes to getting people vaccinated. Compañeros has worked with the San Juan Base and Health Department to provide translation services and transportation. There is a few barriers like technology or um, internet access, other things that probably it's not easy for people to get the appointment and also to get into the site to get the vaccine. She says the health department has been helpful in not asking people for IDs or other documents. Garcia says building trust with the community will be crucial to get more people who are undocumented vaccinated in the coming weeks as the state moves to inoculating people who work in food service and hospitality. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. Finally today, Denver singer-songwriter Aralie Michelle's debut album Echolalia is a musical journey of self-love. Her songs chronicle her experiences with trauma, abuse, and chauvinism. The opening track shares its name with a tragic Shakespearean character. I read about something called Ophelia syndrome, where the person tends to romanticize things too much and they get themselves into these horrible situations. And I kind of had this idea of what if I retold Ophelia's story rather than her tragically dying because she's upset that Hamlet killed her father. What if she became her own person? And that's kind of what that song is about, is taking all of the adversity that you face, especially as a woman, and deciding, you know what, I'm going to live my best life in spite of it. While she waited around for everyone, but no one ever came. Ophelia, now hang your head and weep. No one wants your bleeding heart or your wretched soul to keep. Oh, it was almost certain that on some level he cared. Judging by the way he looked at me every time he stared. But it was no more than a figment of my naivety. Wishful thinking. From Denver singer-songwriter Aralie Michelle, her debut album Echolalia is out now. And thanks to the cast of characters who make Colorado Matters happen. 
Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.